Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Timeless Gamer, the official weekend podcast of the Pinoy Retro Gaming Network. My name is Joel Bakleet, and I will be your host for this show. We have a very special episode today featuring a very special guest. As such, we will not be doing our usual format of talking about the games we've been playing lately. Instead, we'll be going straight into our interview portion. Joining me for this interview will be my cohorts and Timeless Gamers, starting with Joe RPG. A little bit of an Hi guys. What's up, what's up? There you go. And next we have Shin Mamuchu. Hello, good morning and good evening everybody and um, belated happy Thanksgiving for everyone. All right, excellent. And last but not least, definitely we have Jay Prime. Good evening, good morning, good day, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, excellent. happy Black Friday. All right, so uh, first things first, actually now let's get right down to it. Let me introduce our very special guest. Uh, you might not have heard of his name very much lately, but you will be very familiar with his works if you are any kind of retro gaming fan or an Atari fan. He's the man who developed such amazing games like the very first film-to-home video game translation ev- ever, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Also one of the Atari's biggest hits, Yar's Revenge. He also programmed what was wrongfully derided as the worst game of all time, E.T. for Atari 2600. Well, I personally think that's not true. Well, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Howard Scott Warshaw. Yay! Such <laughs> an honor. Such a deep Hello. honor. Hello. Uh, the honor is mine. Thank you, Joel. All right. Thank you very much for being on our show, Howard. Um, well, uh, let's begin first by uh, having a little bit of an introduction for yourself. Yeah, having a little bit of a self-introduction uh, to the viewers that we have right now who um, are weaned on video games such as Mobile Legends and Fortnite. Um, let's have a little bit of an introduction from Mr. W- uh, Mr. Howard Scott Warshaw himself. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. So I just want to say that before there was uh, Fortnite, before there was uh, Halo, before there was any of this, video games had to be born at some point. And that's where I came in. I was one of the pioneers at the beginning of video games, trying to define the standards to refine now. And that was an amazing time of life. It was an amazing time in the industry. And uh, I've, I've never forgotten my... Uh, experiences and the joy and the excitement that I felt at Atari launching a brand new medium, the medium of interactive entertainment. So, uh, as Joel said, my name is Howard Scott Warshaw. I did Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., and Abitur, a game that is starting to get some now because it's being re-released. Uh, interestingly, I have some records in I have the shortest game development of all time with E.T., which was done in five weeks and then released. I also have one of the longest developments because my game Saboteur was done at Atari, but was not released then and is being released now some nearly 40 years later. So I have the fastest and the slowest development of all time on the 2600. And uh, I have held it, I'm sure we can get to some. Talk, but thank you very much for having me. I'm just a guy who started in games, took a long turn around through filming, through all kinds of adventures and things out of technology, and now I've landed as the Silicon Valley therapist. I am actually a psychotherapist now, so which I used to, and I specialize in working with nerds, right, with nerds, geeks, and all kinds of hype people. And so soul, the way sir. I look Bless at it is I came full circle, right? Oh, thank you. Uh, the way I look at it is make games to entertain nerds, but now I actually work to make their lives better. And I'm very uh, honored and proud to do that work. And uh, But as a writer, I have uh, ventured into a number of things. And I'm sure we'll talk about this book, Once Upon Atari, which is how I made history by killing an industry, which is... Uh, the book that I wrote that's all about what it was like being there at the beginning of the industry, what happened to the crash of 83, what it's like to work in video gaming then and now, and uh, the arc of my life, which has many degrees. 
right now we are showing a little bit of a preview of Howard's uh, website, Once Upon Atari. If you guys are interested, please check out his website, onceuponatari.com. No spaces, no dashes, no nothing. You can write it out the way it is and you get to his website. There's tons of amazing material in there. Uh, and you can also have a look at uh, some merchandise that you can purchase from him, like his uh, documentary and his book, like, like he mentioned. So let us begin this conversation by asking um, Howard a little bit. Oh, speaking, of, uh, let's let's just flash that a little bit. Yeah, uh, he does have a DVD documentary about um, how things were back in the day and uh, interviews with very influential that. people. Oh, here one. Right there, Once Upon Atari, the documentary. This was actually be video producer to make this documentary. And the only piece that ever produced that is done entirely by people who worked in the VCS department at Atari making 2600 games. So this is exclusively the word from people who were actually there doing it. So that's mm -hmm. rather than getting secondhand information, this is from the work from the mouth of the act from the amount of the actual people who were there in the trenches. There you go. All right. So let's begin by asking right, it's Howard. Not only from those methods the entire stable sorry sorry about that I, I i i apologize for that howard um let's begin by asking howard um the very first question uh let's start at the very beginning as has been said in you know uh the sound of music it's a very good place to start um as a young programmer tell us a little bit about your life in the early days and how it led to your being being uh, how it led to your working in atari well, it's interesting because Atari was the last place I figured I'd wind up. I went virtually everywhere else first. I, I wasn't even going to go into computers until I was originally working at university. I was going to school study comics and math, and I'd never had a computer course. And somebody, one of my advisors told me, you've got to have computers if you're going to go anywhere in economics. I took one computer course and I was sold. And so from the moment I took my first computer course, uh, about two and a half years later, I had a master's degree in it because I just was totally taken by computers. It was the most amazing thing because you didn't have to read books. You didn't have to do papers or solve puzzles. And it was just a great, fun way to go to school. So I totally dove into computers. came to work at Hewlett-Packard in California. Oh, and HP. All that I had found in computing. Absolutely. I was a humper pumper, as they say at HP. <laughs> and, uh, all the joy and exhilaration and excitement that I had found at uh, in computing disappeared when I started doing commercial programming on a scale at Hewlett Packard, and I was incredibly impressed. And I didn't know what to do. And I was out of a zoo case at HP because you wouldn't know what to talk to me, but I'm quite a large personality. And I don't always fit in subtle corporate environments. And so a friend of mine who worked there said, hey, the kind of acting out that I would do, the kind of shenanigans that I would pull at HP, he said, you know, where my wife works, they do that kind of stuff all the time. I said, oh, where's that? He goes, H uh, he goes Atari. Now, that was the first time I heard of Atari as a place to work. And so I went and interviewed there, pushed my way in. I talked my way into an interview, went through a whole interview process, and then they rejected me. <laughs> so really? uh, I didn't, didn't accept that. that. I did not accept Yeah, uh, I was rejected by Atari initially, and I just called up uh, the hiring manager, and I just started talking with him and talking with him, begged him and pleaded and did everything. And I ended up, I, I negotiated a 20% cut in pay to go to and, and to be on probation to get into Atari. I knew that was a place I needed, and I wanted to give me and uh, that turned out. He's in Atari history. The idea that I initially rejected. Hmm. Okay. Excellent. So um, let's see. In your time, that was around 19. Uh, was that 1980? Around that time, if I remember correctly, from the book. That's yeah. That's around late 1980. I, I arrive at Atari at the very beginning of 81. 1981. For those of you in the audience, that is yeah, um, close. To 
40 years ago, you guys. Uh, we are <laughs> we're talking about the foundations of the video gaming industry uh, as it is right now. And Howard was there to actually witness Atari and its during its prime. Um, which uh, brings me to the second question. Uh, does anybody want to ask this one, or should I should I uh, pitch it to Howard first? I say you should go. You go ahead first. Uh, All right. Actually, then humble, yeah. Um, I'm I'm a huge. Uh, technology history guy and I love the idea of meeting uh, like we said the pillars of the industry the ones who are foundational to how things are nowadays uh, let me ask you uh, from what I read in your book you came in during the tenure of Ray Kassar if I'm if I if I read that correctly right Howard that's correct yes that's correct uh, the question is um, did you ever meet the actual founder of Atari Nolan Bushnell I did. I didn't meet him much while I was at Atari, except for the very end of my Atari uh, reign. But I have run into Nolan many times over the years. We're actually pretty good friends. And uh, we did have some fun around the making of the movie Atari Game Over, which we're both in. But Nolan's an amazing guy. But I, I didn't meet Nolan directly right away. But what I did meet was Nolan's a culture. Because when I arrived at Atari, it was at a very critical time. And I go into this at length in the book, the idea of the cultural shift that went on at Atari from uh, Nolan Bush now, which was the kind of culture everybody who's into tech gaming dreams of. Because it was a super creative environment where engineers and creative people had framed to do whatever they as long as they generated and then had to be cool product at that. And uh, that was replaced by Warner and Ray Kazar, which was more of a money-focused, marketing-oriented uh, mentality. You know, and both of them are fine. Both of them have their place. But at Atari, initially, it was all creative, and then it turned into all money, and the creativity kind of got quashed because nobody really knew how to blend these two. Uh, Technotainment, which is what Atari kind of launched, was a new thing. Nobody really knew how to do and uh, we were blazing new trail. Now, I was someone who happened to come from an e background who also picked up technology. So I was someone who was uniquely suited to see both sides of the fence, whereas most of the engineers were just like, get out here, we just want to do our creative product. Most engineers were, hey, just give us something and stop holding it back. We want it better to put it out so we can sell it and uh, there was a lot of conflict there and I was one person who kind of walked both sides of the fence and so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book because actually as I'm sure a lot of your listeners recognize if they're working in tech uh, the battle between engineering and marketing started at Atari but continues to this day it does and it's just amazing clash of iconic personalities and egos all the time and it's a because I'm also a psychotherapist, so I look at this from that point of view, and I think some very interesting. Oh, I think we uh, the mess uh, the signal might have uh, caught a little bit. Yeah, we're having some technical difficulties. Yeah. I think on uh, Howard's end. Howard, uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, could you repeat that last portion for us, please? I think we've got a lag thing going on here. Yeah, a yeah, there, there is a delay. Um, actually, from from both sides. The part so, about the lag or the part about marketing yeah. and engine? Uh, the little ending part about um, how how in the end uh, marketing and engineering uh, are uh, from from the psychotherapist's uh, point of view. Um, yeah. You were you were uh, you caught uh, on that side. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what's in therapist is that in the engineering community, you have some uh, really brilliant and creative minds and it's very interesting people to deal with and in the marketing department you also have some brilliant creative people and the one thing you have in common with everybody in this is ego there's a tremendous amount of ego involved ego, in people yes. who are trying to really make a mark to uh, you know really do big things in the industry so the clash between the two of them uh, intense it's intense because it's in a lot of ways unnecessary we should be working together right there's a, there's that is a very joke true. there's an old joke in academia that says for academics so vague and the answer is 
The answer is because <laughs> and so you can have, you know, really brutal politics among people in small stakes environments. In high tech, there are large stakes environments because millions and sometimes billions of dollars are on the line. <clears throat> Everybody wants a part of it and everybody wants to be responsible for having it and generated and, and uh it just creates these brutal infighting scenarios that uh like i say as an engineer it's really hard to take as a marketer it's extremely frustrating all right wow it's it's um like like howard says uh it's like one of those things that you can see uh from his experience that happened before and it continues to this very day uh, it reminds me of uh reminds me of a line from the movie gladiator uh by ridley scott the things you do today echo in eternity and it's like something that we uh something that that happened before still happens today some would say it's a never-ending cycle um Moving, moving forward though, let's continue with uh, with the next question. Uh, Mamuchu has a question for you, Howard. Yeah, because um, I was just like wondering in regards to like you know, because uh, we did kind of delve in, in with uh, Josh. Uh, oh, uh, it looks like he's he's caught in a little bit of a lag situation there too. <laughs> but yes, um, sorry, Mamuchu. Um, yeah. Again, yeah. I think you got caught in a little yeah. bit of lag. Please, uh, please yeah. your question. Yeah, sorry, my, my internet is uh, uh, acting a little bit weird, so sorry about that, guys. That's uh, all right. Yeah. Okay, you, guys, you guys were actually t already mentioning about Nolan Bushnell earlier, and then like your time in Atari. I was like wondering, like in regards to the, yeah, um, I think I'm still lagging right now. No, you're still, you're still, no, you're keep going, keep going, Mama Chu. I think you're okay. I yeah, think you're we're okay. good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I was like wondering, like, uh, in regards to the culture in Atari, uh, is it like, is it competitive? Is it fun? I mean, what's the um the all around environment in Atari? That's breaking up. By okay. Uh, I think uh, Howard uh, got caught in a little bit of lag there as well. Uh, let's wait until he comes back. Uh, fully. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I think Mamuchu's question was. How was Atari's Not culture really during the, the time that you were there? And um, yeah. you mentioned that in Nolan Bushnell's uh, Atari, it was very much fun. And transitioning into Rekasar's culture, it was different. How was it? How, how was it actually, uh, Howard? Hello. Hello. Yeah, Howard, can you hear me? I can hear you now. All right, excellent. Uh, Mamuchu's question was regarding your time in in, in Atari. You kind of touched on this. Uh, about how you came during the cusp at the very end of Nolan's uh, Nolan Bushnell's time going into Rekha Sars and Nolan's approach was very much fun fun oriented creative and going to Rekha Sars time it was a little different Test, tell us a little bit about how that how that transition happened what the culture was back then okay it was uh, extremely different uh, it was a different focus and I want to I want to accentuate the idea that I don't know if it's about right or wrong, it's about different. Uh, but that change was shocking, particularly to creative people, because mm. the change was when a creative only Nolan's uh, world was about producing fun. It was just about producing fun. Ever you to make something fun, creating profits and you did whatever you could to maximize profits as they saw it now some people typically in engineering the way people think is the way we maximize profits is by making a better product and in marketing the way people tend to think is the way we maximize profits is a marketing window with advertising and promotion and hitting that window with product and not missing it and the quality of the product isn't as important as, as pumping things through the window and the thing is they're both valid approaches but they're directly in common and when you have that kind of conflict as you can well imagine uh, each person thinks they're the one who's right and the other one is wrong and that was the root of tremendous conflict there and uh, because each side feels the other is compromising their vision their ideals so and uh, the way the, the real uh, key to looking at all this is that uh, Nolan will charge engineers decided when a game was ready you know the idea of who decides ready when is it ready to go out and ship uh, during the Nolan regime 
engineering decided when a product was ready and then they'd hand it over to marketing and marketing would put it out and promote it and support it. Uh, during Ray's regime, that power to decide when a product was done, when a game is ready to go out, shifted from engineering to marketing. So now it was more in charge of what games were going to be done and what the schedules were. That's how we wound up with five weeks for ET. Engineer put the, the idea of doing a game in five weeks. In fact, and I, I go into this in the book, here's that when they negotiated the deal for the ET, they called up my boss's boss, the guy who was the head of VCS engineering, and said, hey, we need ET for September 1st. This is late July. He goes, we have we have about five weeks. He goes, he goes, we need ET. Can you give us a game? And he said, no, just can't do five weeks. Can't be done. For that, Ray Kazar, because I knew Ray. Ray and I had a few dealings together that were kind of amusing, at least for me. And he still <laughs> called why. me up directly and said, hey, uh, you know, can you do it? Will you do it? And I told him, absolutely, I will do it, provided we reach the right arrangement. And uh, and that was the beginning of ET. Hmm. But it was the idea that you could even think of trying to do games. Typically, took six to eight months to do at that time. So in engineering, the idea of even trying to do a game in weeks was ridiculous. Of course, the I because it was ridiculous, the idea appealed to me tremendously because I love a challenge. Even if it's a ridiculous, absurd challenge, I really felt up to it and I really wanted to try it. And so, and I did ET, you know, and I don't, I don't feel bad about the fact that a lot of people call ET the worst game or the worst game ever done. Uh, the truth is I actually prefer when people do identify ET as the worst game of all time, because I also did Yars Revenge, which is frequently considered by many to be one of the best. So as long as T is the worst game of all time, this range of any game design. All right, excellent. Um, we have here. Uh, let me just. Uh, uh, let me just uh, forward you to my uh, to my colleague here, Jay. Actually, Jay Prime did a stream recently yes. of your games. Actually, yes. he did a stream most recently. I think this was just this past Thursday. Yes. Uh, Jay is considered one of the youngest members of Pinoy Retro Gaming. And I gave him a challenge to play through some of your games. Um, like uh, like um, Yars Revenge, he did a little bit of uh, Saboteur, actually. He played Saboteur and he played E.T. Now, uh, I want uh, Jay to give a little bit of uh, feedback. Uh, Noel, maybe like in his opinion on how fun <laughs> your games were. But, okay. All right. Okay, I'll give my honest, 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 honest opinion because you know I deserve. We all deserve to hear it. Um, how it's you know just one hundred percent raw. So I'll begin with Yars Revenge. I thought it was. Um, I thought it was, you know being that I'm mostly like I started with Nintendo and so on and so forth. So I never really had a chance to play much Atari back then. So when I started with Yars Revenge, genuinely I was confused of where to begin. Um, you know, I saw the little. The little, um, the little, whatever section it is, like you can't shoot through, um, you can't shoot through the, uh, the little yard thing, right? <laughs> and then, um, then I had to figure out, like, I had to like get to the yeah. cannon, um, towards the towards the end. So, um, for the most part, I had quite a bit of fun with it. Um, I was confused, but I had um, Joel's uh, guidance to get me through. Um, uh, so far, like, yeah, I, I actually enjoyed it. <clears throat> um, the game Sabotar, um, we weren't able to, I was actually trying to get Raiders of the Lost Ark to work, but uh, for some reason I wasn't able to, so I had to move on to Sabotar. And uh, Sabotar I actually enjoyed. Um, had a little bit of struggle here and there. Um, I did appreciate the fact that um, there was a little Easter egg. You could see, uh, you know, the Yarfly or whatever it was called as one of the enemies. Um, I thought there that was quite enjoyable, yes. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, I I don't think I was able to yeah, the finish that game. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I made this uh, earlier. A little uh, yes, montage. Jay did that uh, little animation right there to show uh, what uh, uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of uh, what Howard's games look like. Right. And for our audio listeners, uh, Howard Scott Warshaw actually did some amazing games. Some people treat his games uh, like Yars Revenge 
and personally speaking, I've played Saboteur as well as some of the very best games that were ever that were ever made. And he also did um, uh, E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, Jay, you have a question about how um, uh, about how Howard uh, might feel about his programming or like uh, his con- continuity, shall we say? You can ask your question, Jay. Okay, so I had a question uh, for you, um, Howard. <clears throat> if things had turned out differently for ET, would you still be a game val- uh, developer back then, or even up until now? Um, would you even consider going back into game development? And um, if given the choice. Would you redo or change anything about ET? Uh, that's a really good. That's a good series. Uh, you know, I. You know what they say about any creative product it, is that they're never done. They're just abandoned, which right. means there's always I would go back and change and shift. In fact, for ET, I have a in my book about the thing that I would change, even for schedules. If I had one extra day, the thing. I would a couple of months what I would change so those were all uh, I've addressed that pretty extensively yeah there's definitely things I would shift as to whether I would have stayed in games uh, if there was a different reaction to ET I don't know that that's the decision I I like doing different things five or six careers uh, so far because what I like to do is I like to get involved in something really see if I can master it make a contribution to it and then I like to move on and, and learn something else and constantly grow that's what I enjoy doing and one of the great things about being a psychotherapist is it's one of the see one of the frustrating things about liking to do something new all the time is that every time you go into a new field you kind of lose all the steam and the all the momentum that you've built in previous careers starting over again and for some people that's exciting and for some people it's horribly frustrating and some people can't bear the thought of losing the status they've achieved so they'll never do it i can't not do it but the great thing about psychotherapy is it's the one kind of work that incorporate everything that I've ever uh, done before because if you're experienced as a therapist that just means there's more people you can work with there's more people you can identify with and connect with so all the, the filmmaking writing speaking uh, tech uh, creative production photography all of these things expanded the skill that I to psychotherapy to work with creative types and people who uh, and I mean I work with high-tech leaders and the super intelligent because it's just they're really I, I meet a male one of the great things about Atari was the idea that it was probably one of the most vibrant and stimulating groups of people I've ever worked with in my life because in tech you meet a lot of smart people because you have to be pretty smart to be able to master tech in the first place and when you're doing creative work you meet some wacky and weird and wild people and that's interesting also but into technotainment video games was one of the first time those were married and really merged and you got to see a bunch of really smart really weird people and that was a lot of fun was just one of the most stimulating, exciting, and creative groups I've ever been involved with. I will never forget my time at Atari. That's why I had to make a video. That's why I had to write a book, is just to share uh, what an amazing place that was. And I always feel that everywhere I go, I'm bringing some special stuff with me because of the chance I had not just launch a new type of media you know of interactive entertainment but to do it with uh just a wacky weird and just really lovable crew of of wild people who were so devoted to bringing entertainment that was that was very painful as i wandered around the industry i tried to find that again uh in game the games it was just really hard to replicate uh, Atari was so amazingly satisfying a place to work that it ruined every place I worked at after Atari. And it was kind of depressing. And it took me 30 years before I found something to do in psychotherapy that was anywhere near approaching how uh, an exciting work Atari. All right, wonderful. Yeah. I- uh- 
I think we have a follow-up question from Mamuchu. Um, yeah. Uh, Howard. Okay. Hopefully, my connection doesn't uh, mess up this one. Uh, you were mentioning earlier that you basically have a huge camaraderie in French form when you were in Atari. Now, um, in this actually, this question is a little bit more connected to Yars Revenge. Um, did you basically title Yars Revenge? Out of the sheer cost of that camaraderie, in order to give a bit of a nod to some friends who, let's say, moved to a different greener pasture, I think I know. <laughs> It's uh, I what I did in naming Yara's Revenge was strategic more than it was collegial, as they say. <laughs> This okay. was more about okay. uh, <laughs> king work marketing. Okay, what you're talking, I did that when I I my revenge got game. Any story behind it? Didn't have any name behind it? Nothing until very development. I was just because my feeling was, what's the point in naming a game until you have a good game? So I kept working on the game. When it got to the point where it was a pretty good game, then it was time to name it. And marketing had some horrible suggestions for names. As far as I was concerned, I wanted mm -hmm. to be the one to name the game. And uh, I, I, this is a whole story. That's a whole elaborate story in the book about how I actually arrived. I used an algorithm to arrive at the name for the game and it worked into oh, it turned into playing back on itself into easter eggs that i put into the game and yes. uh, another thing i did was i wrote a story piece for game environment the story that was nobody had ever done that before i was actually the first one to do uh, a backstory for a video game i wrote an entire story just to strengthen the name to work it through marketing and they decided yeah. to turn it into an auxiliary product a comic book which was the first a video game ever had an auxiliary product yours revenge is full of firsts there were a lot of things that i did in yours revenge that became industry standards but it was first it had, it had reset from the joystick so you didn't have to go back to the base unit to do anything it was first full explosion it had the first marketing approved Uh, signature and Easter egg. Uh, there were just a lot of things that were groundbreaking. Yard. The sound system in Yard was pretty groundbreaking. Uh -huh. It was much more elaborate than anything you'd seen before, because you know I was there as a technician and a mathematician. Right? You had to be a good programmer to be able to work the VCS. But I'm also mm -hmm. a huge film fan. And I had, although I had a master's in computer engineering at the time and a bachelor's in math, I also had a degree in economics. I had a minor in theater. And I think that my theater wow. background and my economics background contributed a lot more to what I could do with games and did my and math. Because, uh, you know, you can meet a spec. When you're programming, it's easy to meet a spec. But when you add something to a spec that says it has to be fun, that becomes a very hard target to hit. And so I used—I didn't think about a game as something that takes place on the screen. I think about a game as something that takes place in the player's mind, right? So when I was programming, I wasn't really thinking about the code and trying to put stuff in registers. I was thinking, what's this going to neurons in a player's brain, and is that going to be cool? And that's the way I programmed games, and so that's why yours is so visually stimulating because I wanted something that was eye popping, that was going to capture your senses. So the Ion Zone is not only a very efficient, because it's actually the code from the cart, mm -hmm. which is another first in Yars Revenge. Yars Revenge is the only game I think that actually displays its code on the screen. People don't realize <laughs> it. <laughs> it's oh. and. Yeah, I all was the, about all to the, ask all the that. visuals and all the sound. It's an audio visual feast. That is true. I see. Oh, snap. It's absolutely true. It was actually a big argument with legal wanted to have a thing. They were saying, can't put the code in copyrights. I told anybody who can actually look at that and figure out the code from that, that they're welcome to it. Because it's, it's like a counter scrolling mask thing it's not purely the code but all the graphics for the ion zone are based on the code in the cart and i only did that because i didn't want to use more space for graphics graphics they eat up memory tremendously and we didn't have yes. much memory so i yeah. used i decided to use the code for graphics in addition to using it for the code and it was mm -hmm. it was just a cool idea that that really saved me a lot of time and enabled me to make yours a cooler looking game damn It's awesome. actually it's all detailed in uh, Howard's book, Once Upon Atari, 
it's a fascinating yes. read. Honestly, I've read through the book. Um, I'm planning. I'm planning on reading. I'm doing another read through uh, before the end of the year, Howard. It's a, an extremely well written book. There's tons of information here, and it actually um, goes into into great detail about how Howard uh, developed Yar's Revenge. If 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 the audience is at all interested, I highly recommend uh, get the book uh, Once Upon a Tari by Howard Scott Warshaw. Um, Jonas might have a question for Howard, though. Mm. Yes. Um, so um, before I ask my question, first of all, thank you so much for Howard Scott Warshaw for uh, for allowing us to have him on this show. One of the highlights of the show so far. Uh, yes, one indeed. Of our biggest guest so far in this um, in the history of Timeless Gamer. And to all of you guys who are uh, who are watching and listening to us live. Uh, be sure to ask some questions there. We might not have enough time to rummage all of them, but we'll try to. Um, with yeah. Howard Scott Warshaw, the one uh, one of the few things that I like about um, about about uh, about the, about the guy himself, you know, uh, out of all of the years that come so far with video, uh, with, with the video game, his uh, with the video game industry, uh, his name is still became uh, is still quite relevant. Up to this day, uh, whether whether you say it's because of the red, uh, whether it's because of Red of the Lost Ark or ET, um, especially with the retro gaming community, his name is always be there, you know. Um, and uh, at least, sir, um, your you, um, you, you that's your legacy um, to all of us, you know. Um, and. Personally, I'm uh, I'm quite interested with gaming history myself. Um, a few things that I've watched um, on YouTube were a lot uh, were some of the things regarding the video game Crash of '83, and I know you've uh, you've heard about this all the time. With some uh, with some of the people keep asking you about this and how um, and on how you influenced the whole thing, but. Uh, oh, guys! One of the few things as well. No, um, if it's if it's not about the book, if you don't, uh, if it's not if, if not about the book or documentary, there's also this um, this movie that James Rolfe made called the Angry Video Game Movie, which Howard Scott Warshaw also um, also co-starred. And <laughs> one of the highlights of that movie was all about ET. And their adventure going to the landfill in New Mexico, trying to um, trying to find that Atari landfill, and uh, and Howard Scott Warshaw was there uh, presenting himself. So my question to Howard: So meeting James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd himself. So how did um, how was the pro, uh, how was the production, and how was um, how did how was he um, how was he on set and how did he able to get to you in the first place? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Jonas. I really appreciate it. And by all means, you can just call me Howard. <laughs> and so I just want to say he's a very interesting guy because the angry video game nerd character is an outrageous, outrageous character. And James Rolfe himself is actually quite a uh, contemplative and an interesting and introspective guy. And he's a brilliant filmmaker. He really is. And he is someone who is truly dedicated to the art of filmmaking. And he's a student of film. And so I really appreciated that. And when I was on set, I was really impressed with how professional the production was. This was a whole-scale, high-end Hollywood production all the departments and everybody there it was it was really a big undertaking but they had had a huge kickstarter they, they had one of the biggest kickstarter fundings ever and uh and he earned it he deserved it he created a great character in the angry video game nerd angry and he uh and they made a one movie but the way it first came out this is kind of funny i think it's funny because they did one of the one of the most unusual they, they sent me a script Right, they got a hold of me an email, and he sent me a script. He says, "Here, you know, we'd like you to be in the movie because it's about ET and you, and we'd really like you to to be yourself in the movie." And I thought, okay. And I read the script, and I did something that actors in history almost never ever do: is I argued for a smaller part. I told him 
that uh, because I was going to be the character that's this crazy guy who lives in a shack in the middle of the desert is hiding out and shooting at people. And I was just becoming a psychotherapist. I was just gotten licensed and I was starting to start my practice. And I was thinking, I'm not sure that's really the image that I want to project for my clients. <laughs> and so I negotiated with them to uh, do a rewrite and uh, give me a smaller part and uh, they got somebody else got another part so some other actor got a big break and they got a decent sized part because I didn't want to do the part that way and, uh, it was very cool and they were very receptive and they felt it actually helped out uh, the, the script because it added another layer of uh, intrigue to the whole script in the rewrite and it was just an amazing amount of work that James Rolfe and Kevin Finn is another uh, guy who wrote and directed, I believe. And it's just really, it's a fun, fun movie. And uh, I really enjoyed being a part of it. But I was really impressed with the professionalism. Excellent. Wonderful. All right. So um, let me be the one to ask, you know, the one of the biggest questions of this interview then, Howard. Uh, I know this has been discussed at Infinitum by a lot of your previous interviews uh, regarding the, about E.T. itself and the video game crash of 1983. I said in the beginning of this interview that I personally don't believe that E.T. is the worst game of all time. I personally believe that given a little bit more time, E.T. would have been a masterpiece, really. And it would have sold, you know, like crazy and it, Actually, I still think that people do consider it and uh, one of the seminal uh, games of that era. Now, the, my question is, um, well, walk us a little bit through about how you felt uh, as E.T. Well, we've heard about how you programmed E.T., how it felt going from sending E.T. out and then hearing as it went along all the way to the very end of the cycle where it turned out that you know people expressed disappointment with it but it's not really something that uh was warranted could you walk us a little bit about over your feelings of how that whole period happened uh that's a really interesting question joel thank you uh initially just the idea of doing the game i never really even thought about it i just thought i have to i must do this this was a challenge i couldn't resist so i took it on and during the development i didn't really think about much of anything because i couldn't think of anything except doing the game i really turned my life off uh, and devoted it 110 percent to doing the game i even had a development system moved into my home so i would never be more than a couple of minutes away from a keyboard unless i was driving between work and home and when the game was done to remember this is way pre-internet right there was no internet back then which means we didn't just drop the game and then have a bunch of feedback right away be able to see and then be able to drop a mod for the game and things like that. It was one shot, we're gonna manufacture it, put it out there, and there's a huge lag between when you finish the game. Like I finished the game by September 1st, it didn't hit shelves until like two and a half months later. Mm -hmm. So for all that time, it was just like, hooray, I finished the game and it felt great and everybody was excited because we had an easy product. But what I told you is that marketing wasn't as concerned with the quality of product as they were with hitting the window. And I had enabled them to hit a window that nobody thought was possible to hit and they just had dollar signs in their eyes and it just looked it was just amazing everything came together so it felt really good and then you get into december and now in december uh you look at the sales charts and things like that and et and raiders of the law both top the sales charts at that christmas i have two games in the top 10 of all video games so i'm feeling pretty good about that because we haven't had much feedback because it was mostly going out at Christmas present, nobody was really opening up and playing it. Everybody was and putting it under the tree and saving it for that came and, and everybody opened it up and a lot of people threw it away and a lot of people got really upset. And uh, but we didn't hear about it right away. Okay, because also there wasn't much media. There were just a few magazines. You didn't have the social media connection where wildfire spreads. And so, but as it got into uh, the next year in 83, 
uh, feedback really started to come back and returns started to go. I have to say that people say that ET is a horrible game, but the truth is even after accounting for all the returns, it still sold over a million and a half copies. In fact, I think I'm the only programmer at Atari whose every game they released was a million sellers. I'm very proud of that. And ET did not break that record, I'm happy to say. But there was a lot of disappointment around ET. And as the words started to come back, and I would hear more and more. And I'm like, so so I tried so I tried playing ET for the first time. And so I wanted to play it raw, like blind. And at first, if I am the ki- if I if I was a kid back in the eighties, um, if I'm if I'm the seven year old, eight year old, ten year old kid playing this game for the first time, I'm like, okay, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? Why 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 do I keep falling? <laughs> uh, yeah, why do I keep falling <laughs> under these pits? And me too. And I'm like, well, Jonas, so, that's well, a great obvi- point. That's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, there's a, there's, there's a manual. A rule in video games. Nobody wanted to read the manual back in the day. <laughs> so, so right. I so I had See, to there was a watch a few videos about was... it. Yeah. Sorry, please proceed, well, Howard. But Go there ahead. weren't. Also, there weren't web videos. No, that's okay. There weren't yeah. web videos that's back then right. either, right? So you couldn't even get hints online because there was no online. So, uh, your point is well. T- I mean, there was a saying at Atari that said uh, everything. It's called Nolan Bushnell's law, which is that a video game should be easy and tough to make. Okay. Easy People to learn. Don't realize hard to that it takes time and effort to make something easy to learn and tough to master. Right. So I tended to make games that were hard to learn and hard to master because if you if you if you expect a little more from the player in terms of learning to work the game, you can deliver a much deeper and a much more involved game. But uh, Jonas, you're absolutely right in that people don't want to read the manual because all the information was there in the manual, and you had two schools of people. You had people who read the manual who in the game. And thought it was cool, and people who didn't read the map couldn't figure out what the heck is going on, and it's not making any sense, and they were upset. And you know, they're all correct. They're all right. I never tell a player you're wrong with your opinion game where it was. Uh, it's okay. I mean, it's a choice I made. Also, expedient because I didn't have much time. You know, making something—it's easy to make something complicated. Right, making something simple takes more time. It's like uh, it was Mark Twain or someone who said, "If I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter." <laughs> Because yeah. to edit things and review them and put things together, that takes time that I didn't have. So, like I say, sometimes it's kind of to think about it. Is one of the problems with ET was that I ended up releasing a game that was virtually a hundred percent of my concept, my initial concept, and that's a horrible, horrible thing. Because in a good development, uh, you do 100% percent of your concept. What happens is, as you're working through the development, your concept changes and it gets better, and you improve things and you things out you didn't know initially. So the initial concept, your final should only be like 15, 20% percent of that, because the rest should be better. The problem with ET was it was 100% percent of my initial concept. <laughs> Never had the chance to improve on that, and so that was kind of a shame. But as the word came back, and I started to get the the negative opinions and stuff, I was ready. Me, this is like six months, seven months after I finished the game. I'm already deeply involved in my next developments and things like that. So, you know, I don't. What what's behind me is not quite as important as it started to carry on into the 90s. So then the internet did come out in the 90s. And one of the greatest things they would do when the internet first started is top 10 lists, right? Everybody likes to do this. It's anything to compile and it's great to vote on it. And ET would be at the top of a lot of the worst game lists. And and then it, that's when it, the wave really started with, oh, what a horrible game it is. It's the worst game of all time. And so, but me being who I am, I always see the funny side of things. I really think humor is a very important piece of life. And if you lose sight of what's funny about something, what else are you missing? That's a question I always pose. So I always find amusing ways to deal with. I came up with clever things to say about it, you know, because I'm essentially a happy person. And ET did not destroy my happiness. 
it might have hurt my career, but not destroy my happiness. And the truth is, ET has always felt to me like a success, right? Because I did the fastest game of all time. Like I said earlier, I don't really believe, I agree with Joel, I don't think it's the worst game of all time. There are worse games than ET, but I like it better when people say ET is the worst because Yars is also the best, and I yeah. like range. <laughs> Not really the worst, but as long as you know what you're doing, I think it's playable. It's enjoyable in its own right. Mm -hmm. The way it is, actually. I've played through it a number of times. And I can tell you, Howard, that my wife uh, is very proud of the fact that she played E.T. Uh, when it first came out and she finished it all all on her own without any without any help from uh, from anybody. She figured it out all, all on her own and she's, you know, it's one of the things that she holds over me as a gamer. She's, she's my wife is a gamer as well. She plays video games a lot. Um, we're of the same age, uh, and that's one of the things that keeps us uh, that keeps us connected. And it's one of the things that wow. she holds over me all all the time. The fact that she finished ET without anybody's help, without uh, and you know, I I have to give her that. So. <laughs> Respect. Yes, but uh, to uh, to bring it all in, uh, let's just. Um, let me just acknowledge the fact that Howard uh, is... Well, me, uh, oh, continue, Howard, please, please. Let me just jump in here for one second. I want to I just say that as a game maker, I am super impressed that your wife was able to just intuit and get through the whole game and win it on her own. That's fantastic. <laughs> as, as a marriage and family therapist, I'd say, don't let that woman go. I She's have, I have absolutely no intention. Uh, when my my marriage vow is till death do us part, I completely plan on fulfilling that to the very end. <laughs> but yes, to bring it all in, though, not um, soon. I hope. Uh, okay, not soon. Not soon. Let's hope not. Okay. <laughs> now, to bring, to bring it all in, Howard is. Um, I, I mentioned that Howard is one of the foundational pillars of video gaming as we know it today. Like Howard mentioned in his book and in this interview, uh, in his book Once Upon Atari by Howard Scott Warshaw, available mm -hmm. in all uh, great, uh, great books, uh, great bookstores uh, uh, all over right now, like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and um, on his website, onceuponatari.com. Again, onceuponatari.com. Howard is one of the foundational pillars of video gaming as we know it today. A uh, quick rundown: Howard is uh, the the Howard is the um, initial conceptualizer of gaming backstories. So, if you are at all uh, knowledgeable of who Solid Snake is, who Master Chief is, or who Nathan Drake of the Uncharted series is, the guy who started all of that is right here with us, Howard Scott Warshaw. Also, uh, an amazing programmer that actually shows. Uh, how much he was able to do with such limited time and resources honestly again i am of the mind that everything that howard did back then was completely amazing if any if anybody here is at all curious about um the history of technology and video games in particular highly recommended you check out howard scott warshaw's website once upon atari check out the documentary once upon atari and his book uh, once upon atari by howard scott warshaw now um, I want to uh, I want to give it back to Howard for one more time because uh, I certainly don't want to take up too much of his valuable time. I know he's got lots to do, and he's he's you know he's the uh, he's the Silicon Valley psychotherapist right now. We don't want <laughs> we don't, we don't want to take up too much of his time. But again, please, Howard, uh, give us some of your thoughts about how things were after Atari and how things are in general in terms of the video game landscape, shall we say, and how your actions have impacted video gaming to today. Um, wow, that's a big question. So, yeah, okay, we'll, yeah, we'll no try problem. to narrow it down. So, no, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, what I would say is that I am honored to have been uh, one of the pioneers and only one of many pioneers launching video game. Uh, I'm super proud to have done some foundational things that really have become standards and pillars, like you're saying, of the industry. I don't really think of myself as a pillar because I'm usually not that stiff. 
but I do think <laughs> that uh, when you look at gaming now, what you see is there's there's tremendous. First, there was the move to 3D, and now we're going from 3D to virtual reality. Uh, gaming today, I always advocate for creativity, and what's interesting about the whole situation with gaming is that gaming has kind of come full circle in a way. In that originally it was just one screen things on a very simple system, just people playing and you just play your game and there you go. And console games grew and grew and grew. And they got to the point where they were so big, no one person could do one. It takes huge teams to create a console game. And when you have large teams needed to do anything, you get inertia. You have trouble uh, shifting momentum and you lose flexibility and you see it in it, there's narrow casting, right? If you look at console games, there are not that many different genres. There's your basic games and that's what people make and they keep re redoing those games over and over. What I like is innovative gameplay and new ideas. and That's harder to come by as time goes on. Uh, it's also it's so expensive to make a video game now a console game that people don't want to take a chance they don't want to take a risk and that suffered and innovation suffers in that environment but when I say it came full circle because in addition to giant console games that we have now we also have handheld games now all uh, you can play on your phone you can play on small devices and it and one person can still write an app to make a new game a fresh gameplay and so the idea that a small group of people or one person can just experiment and play with new types of game mechanics, that's super exciting to me because if there's one thing I felt I brought to video games, it was fresh perspective and the idea of always expanding horizon. And that's what was really important to me. That's what is going to remain important in the industry. The video game industry is generating technologies that are very important to everything that we do. And people talk about VR, virtual reality. I think augmented reality or AR is actually going to be the great contribution of video gaming that's going to really uh -huh. change people's lives. But the real thing that I hope, if there's anything that I brought to gaming and I promote forever and hope always maintains, is pure creativity, is the idea of trying something new find the new way to go inspiration uh, that's what I'm all about as a therapist and that's what I'm all about uh, as a game planner, and that's what I hope is becomes my legacy in the industry and Joel and everybody I just want to say thank you so much for having me on I really appreciate this opportunity it's great to talk to all of you yes. My goodness, Howard, we're the ones who are actually yeah, very honored that you've decided to grace yeah. us with your presence. It is completely amazing for us that um, that you have taken a little bit of your time and uh, decided to share your experiences with us, not just with mm -hmm. analysts here in Timeless Gamer, part of Pinoy Retro Gaming, but also our audience worldwide, because we are trying to communicate uh, to not just uh, our generation, but also to the gen generations that are coming up nowadays uh, who are video gamers and who play the games but might not have a good understanding of how everything started honestly it's an amazing amazing trip uh, if anybody is at all interested in reading on history uh, check out Howard Scott Warshaw's book once upon Atari uh, available in good bookstores and all books and uh, book bookstores and his uh, website onceuponatari.com uh i'll i'll give it to jonas for the final fight for the uh final um actually i, I oh, have a one quick quick oh, question how much you might have one really quick question then. yeah um no problem I, yeah th thank thanks howard um my last question is in regards to the sequel for your revenge were you aware of that and if you are how did you feel about those people basically recreating your game remixing things around to make it a little bit different but it's basically still your revenge. Uh, Shin, I gotta tell you, I'm really glad you brought that up because uh, I wasn't crazy about it because people have done variants of Yars Revenge and they didn't consult me about it and and yeah. that wouldn't bother me of itself except a lot of times what didn't really enhance or improve or think the basic setting of Yars Revenge to me is very specific but i yeah. will announce here and this word is only beginning to get out yes. that i am actually looking at creating a yars revenge sequel people always ask me hey could you redo et would you fix et if you do another game and i always say you know what 
if I were going to do another game, not BET. I'm going to do something that you haven't seen before. I've had a oh design my in my head for a Yars Revenge sequel for like over 30 years. I've still never seen it done anywhere. It's a beautiful gameplay. It's well tailored to the 2600. It would be a frenetic, fast action gameplay with exciting visuals, lots of eye popping, uh -huh. ear popping action going on. I think I'm finally going to do this game. So I'm going to find a way to do it, whether I do it with Atari or without Atari. I'm going to make this thing come true because people have done other Yars products. No one has ever really done what I would consider to be a wild Yars or yeah. sequel. I'm going to do it. So awesome. there it is. Yeah. Your audience, you're the first one. Sweet. Nice. Yeah. And if you need, yeah. If and if you need a good Christmas present to have fun, my development of next game, <laughs> uh, as nice. was saying, once upon Atari, how I made history by killing an industry. And the Once Upon Atari DVD, which is all the actual game programmers and developers uh, telling their stories of what happened at Atari, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, onceuponatari.com is the place for your late Christmas shopping because you can get the legacy that keeps on giving. Excellent. Wonderful. I'm looking forward for that. Awesome. There you go. Again, ladies and gentlemen, onceuponatari.com, the website where you can get the Once Upon Atari documentary on DVD or Howard Scott Warshaw's book, Once Upon Atari, which, which chronicles how he made history by killing an industry. All right. Final, final thoughts, final comments from our uh, Master of Ceremonies, Jonas. Joe, take it away. All right. So there you have it, guys. So Once Upon Atari is now available on Howard's website. So that's uh, Once Upon Atari. I think the um, I think the website now is called New Once Upon Atari. Uh, Just Google that, guys, and then I'm showing you guys the uh, uh, the uh, the homepage right now. And for a limited time only, you can get the Once Upon Atari set which includes the book and the DVD documentary series, both signed by Howard Scott Warshaw himself, all for a good price of $54.95 US dollars. Now, I already, uh, I already corresponded with Howard with my copy of, um, of this particular bundle. Um, uh, it's a little bit costly uh, sending it to Australia, but hey, guys, it is worth it, all right? So, once upon a time, guys, get it especially this coming christmas um all retro uh all retro gamers should at least um have at least the book or um why not get both right <laughs> yeah. so uh i'm gonna give it uh, again to to howard to give thanks to and he wants to shout out some uh, some of the people who are watching us live and listening to us live at the very moment uh, howard uh, I just want to say thank you all again for having me on. My wife will not forgive me if I don't, you know, mention the fact that yep, that at our website I will personally autograph copy for you if you order through my website at Atari.com. I will actually write out an autograph that's personalized for you. Uh, I'm happy to do it. I just want to appreciate all the people. You know, making video games doesn't mean anything without players, without fans, without people who follow, who are into it. I have been so fortunate so blessed in my life to have been able to provide entertainment for people and to have them really appreciate it and enjoy it and spending time with the people who appreciate and enjoy classic video games it's always a pleasure so once again i just thank you so much for having me on it's a be uh I'll do it again sometime if you guys hey, are up for it, we're going to be so honored if, you, if you're going to drop by and then you give us a bit of a hint whence the new Yars Revenge remake will yeah. gonna come out. And honestly, for that. especially considering the fact that Howard has this this book, which has so many stories. Honestly, it's not just for video, retro video gamers. It's not just for gamers in general. It's also for historians. It's also for game for programmers in general. It's also yes. for anybody who's all interested in technology and how marketing ties into um, technology and how they work together and sometimes how they conflict. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Howard Scott Warshaw of Once Upon Atari. Thank you very much, Howard, for being here. We are so grateful for the time. Thank you so much. And we are, we are extremely thankful. We look forward to having you again sometime in the near future if, uh, if, we, uh, if you at all 
uh, if you're at all interested in telling us a little bit more about the stories that you have about uh, the uh, about the days. And again, uh, this uh, Howard Scott Warshaw is the Silicon Valley psychotherapist. You can check out his practice also on uh, through his website on onceuponatari.com. Jonas, take us away. All right. And there you have it, guys. So we won't. Uh, we don't want to keep Sir Howard here. I, I keep calling him Sir. I'm so polite. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways. So to all of you well, guys, no objection um, here. Thank you all so much. <laughs> so to all of you guys who stayed for uh, uh, um, who stayed from the very beginning of uh, of this interview, thank you so much for being here. And and as always, guys. Our video games and our bodies may go out of date, but our video game experiences will forever remain. Hi, Thank you very much, everybody. God bless. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays.